someone should be the official repository of video game playing information. And in a, in a matter of literally one day, we, we became the official, you know, scorekeepers for all the video game manufacturers, for all the video game arcades, and for the magazines and media, what have you. We get letters from Israel. We've gotten letter, lots of letters and phone calls from Canada. And uh, I've been in contact with the National Association for Japan. Even recently, we were in the Chinese Post. An article on us was in the Chinese Post in Taiwan, China. We have four movie-making companies getting ready to come to Tumwa in Kirksville. One wants to make a documentary on the, the Twin Galaxies story. More and more people are discovering video games. In fact, they are everywhere, even in dentist's office around the United States. And who's playing them in dentist offices? Uh, mothers and grandmothers and uncles and aunts and cousins and everybody that you can think of has played, seems to have played video games by now. So it hasn't peaked yet? Oh, no, no. I would say that it's going to continue to grow for quite a few years because everybody likes games, everybody likes sports. Those two qualities seem to be embodied in this. I am Jay Laroque, and I am happy and honored today to be joined by so many incredible people in one group. We're discussing 35 years in esports, and a lot of people know about how esports is blowing up right now, but a lot of people don't know about its roots and history. And this is our chance to be able to talk about that. And I'm really honored to be joined today by Walter Day, founder of Twin Galaxies, as well as Billy Mitchell, gamer of the 20th century, Todd Rogers, the first professional gamer, Ben Gold, first world video game champion, Steve Sanders, top 16 gamer of Life magazine in 1982. And of course, Triforce Johnson, founder of Empire Arcadia and a pro gamer herself. Thanks all you guys for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for so, having us. Let's just get into it because there's a lot of history. Um, I guess we'll start uh, first with uh, Todd. Um, you're known as the first professional gamer in competitive gaming. Could you tell us uh, you know, what was your first video game tournament that you won money in? And when did you first start playing video uh, games for company, you know, for competition uh, in the video game industry? Well, I think the first um, game that I had actually won money in that wasn't provided by a company on a payroll basis, uh, there was a, a contest at the Glenview Naval Air Base that would have the same with mid to late 70s on a game called Dotson 280 South. And they had a, uh, a bounty up there saying that, well, if you, if you make the highest score or the best time, you would win the, uh, the prize. And I did. And it stayed uh, up there for, for many years thereafter, but that's really not how I got my break into gaming. Uh, I did when a company called Activision um, came up with a couple of their cell phone products and in the brochure of one of the games, which was like Dotson 280Z, which was a game called Dragster. Yeah, they mentioned what the time on the, in the brochure was. They said, if you break the score, you'll get recognition. And by that time, it was like 1979, 1980, and I kept submitting my scores, beating my time, until 1982 when they uh, invited me out to the Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago. And uh, they wanted to see live if I could actually perform uh, in front of the developers and uh, other people to prove my, uh, my gaming ability. Oh, okay. I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, just getting that chance to, to break in, I mean, what was it like? Like, how did you feel emotionally knowing that, you know, gaming at the time back then was so far in the, you know, it wasn't something that where you could make that kind of money. What was it just like having that experience? Well, 
was just, uh, it was all about that competitive spirit. Todd was in a unique position because he was the first gamer, the first gamer getting paid. And whenever we got together at an event, Life Magazine or everyone else, everybody wanted to be in that position. Everybody wanted to be paid to play games. Everybody wanted to be paid giving that those kudos or that notoriety for the fact that they were so good at what they did. So the fact that Todd was the first one doing that, you know, it's something that we all look back on and say, wow, that's what we all wanted. And Todd was the one who achieved it. That was really cool, actually. Yeah, I've got a client right now who's an esports professional, and he makes uh, more than enough money to, to uh, you know, take care of his whole family, although he's just a single guy. But uh, I just laugh because I think he's living the life that all of us thought at Life Magazine that we'd be living, you know, 35 years ago. But now, finally today, people are able to do that. Yeah, I mean, right. that is quite credible to see that people have that opportunity. Actually, I wanted to ask uh, the three of you, Billy Mitchell, Ben Gold, and Steve Sanders, all three of you were part of that 1982 photo shoot by Life Magazine, uh, where you all were regarded as the three, three of the top 16 gamers in the world. I mean, what was that feeling like? What made you guys, you know, want to go to Ottawa, Iowa, and help Walter uh, and Twin Galaxy and get, you know, that part of history? Well, Ottawa's in Canada. Ah, Ottawa. <laughs> I knew I would pronounce it wrong. And oh, I knew you'd call me on it. Oh, I knew Tumwa. you'd call me on it. <laughs> it's a Tomwa. Well, well, speaking for myself, and I think it's probably like this in a lot of sports. It must be like this when you walk into college, when you walk into a professional team. You walk in wondering if, if you're good enough. You walk in wondering if you should be there. And you walk in wondering what everyone else is like. And, you know, all of that, you know, quickly gets established. There's people who gain, you know, great levels of confidence and notoriety. And there's people who are kind of timid who stay in the background. But going there or arriving there, I did. I sort of scratched my head saying, you know, what am I walking into? And, uh, of course, we all know what happened at Life Magazine. So I certainly did belong there. <laughs> well, maybe I'll, I'll share that. But... So, so I'll share kind of that, that for me, the way I look at the, that, that experience was um, we, were all, we were all living in kind of a vacuum. So it's like you had all these people that were playing, you know, local, that I'm going to be the best, I'm going to be the best. And, and there really wasn't anybody that was keeping track of the world records of the best players. Or, there wasn't uh, really a... a I mean, before Walter, there was really no place to go to say, how do I compare to somebody else in the country? And so, so I happened to stumble upon Twin Galaxy because I had a local um, rivalry on a game that was a marathon game. And I didn't want to spend, um, you know, I didn't want to just spend every weekend getting, spending 10, 15 hours getting it was Stargate you know, to get a score. So I finally called Williams, the manufacturer, and then they led me to Walter. And so... Going to Atemba was more for me. I never, see, I look at it more like we were the scrappy baseball players of the 1860s. You know, that's really the, the analogy. So there was no money in it. We didn't really know if it was going to be anything. We just knew that we wanted to be around the best people and meet people that, that thought like us. And, and that really was, to me, the atmosphere of there. It was nothing like a professional gaming. It was more like we just all were the, be were, were the best at what we did. And we we're trying to figure out how we compare with other people. And Steve, how did you feel? Oh, it was great. You know, I, I had uh, hooked up with Twin Galaxies because of the book that I wrote on Donkey Kong. Um, actually, I wanted to write a book on Pac-Man after getting a, a score of nearly 3 million back in October of 81. And I finally decided I was going to write a book on Pac-Man. But when I called Phantom Books, they said, well, we already have a, a book under contract for Pac-Man what other games do you play? And I said, well, I play Donkey Kong. And they said, how good are you? What Ben was saying, I didn't really have a way to answer that question. I mean, how, how could anybody know how good they were compared to the rest of the world? All I knew was how good I was compared to, you know, the few, the few arcades that I went to. And so the only way I could answer the question was to say, well, I've got the highest score in all the arcades that I go to. And he said, well, I want you to call Walter Day. And the funny thing about that is, 
the reason he said call Walter Day was that just 10 days earlier, Walter had sent out a press release and the Associated Press had picked it up and video games were such a big deal at that time, 1981, 1982, that his press release, Walter's press release actually made so that's what I did. I called Walter and Walter said to me uh, after the phone call, he said, well, that's the highest score, Donkey Kong score I've ever heard of. So you've unofficially got the world record. That's what I called Bantam Books back, told them, and they said, oh, great. We want to hire you to write our book on Donkey Kong. So that's how I got hooked up with Twin Galaxies. And, and uh, then for Life Magazine, it was kind of like what he said. It was just fun to be there with the other guys that also were great at video games. Steve, what month was that that Bantam gave you the thumbs up? February of 82. Okay. You and I first spoke in uh, July of 82, so about, you know, five months earlier. Later, you mean? Later, sure. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, because Billy and I got hooked up together by Walter, actually. Walter was the one at some point. I guess it was July uh, of 82 that, that Walter put Billy and me together. As far as uh, ABC's Dan, That's Incredible, um, we know that that was, the, they were the ones that hosted the first world television broadcast of a video game world championship. Um, a lot of people are not aware that, that was, there was a qualifier leading up to that uh, in Twin Galaxies. Uh, Walter, can you explain to us how did you manage to you know, put that together and make that happen? You know, he, he had told me back in the day when, during that time period, he was getting at least 100 calls a day from people yeah. who were submitting score, uh, media information, things like that. So the idea of media reaching out or trying to get a hold of him in regards to what was the biggest craze going on, which was video games or arcade games, um, I don't think it was very difficult for him to get people's attention. Walter, so... Seeing people like Todd Rogers and I'm, and I'm assuming other people like him that was competing in competitive gaming prior to Twins Galaxies, can you give us a chronological history of Twin Galaxy's creation and what up, led up to the scoreboard uh, and the Life magazine photo shoot in 1982? Of course. Twin Galaxies, of course, began on the mental level. It became as a concept. It became a desire first. I personally, when I discovered video games and fell in love with them, I was intrigued from the very first moment by excellence in video game playing. Uh, I would go to arcades and play games all over the nation, it seems. And wherever I could find champions, I'd be amazed by them and I'd watch them. And also, I'd notice that crowds of people would gather around the champions and be putting on incredible displays of skill on Gore for Galaxian or Pac-Man or what have you. And this was the summer of 80 and then the summer of 81, actually. But the summer of 81, I had a business where I was traveling the country, going from city to city, with a carload of old newspapers that dated back to even the 1600s. And I was trying to sell them as birthday gifts or as interior decor to hang on an office wall for like a business office. But everywhere I went, I would go to the arcades and play the arcade games there. And I became very aware of high scores and also high score champions watching people perform successfully. And uh, I saw that it was a, I just saw a lot of people competing on games. However, of course, there was no infrastructure in place to turn all their activities, all their interest into anything that was meaningful. So by the time the summer of 1981 was over uh, and into September, I had been to easily uh, way over 100 arcades around the nation. And I had written down a lot of scores and even tried to track down champions that I got rumors of, that I received rumors of to see if I could find them and learn their tricks. I was in love with the video game so much that some friends helped me open up an arcade. They advised me on how to get the games and where to go and what have you and so on. I opened up my arcade in the Tumblr and uh, I opened it up. You know, you think you'd want to make some money with it, but I really opened it up because I loved playing video games so much. And I'd stay up till two in the morning playing games with all the other kids, all the other kids, I was a big kid too, uh, trying to get high scores on the games. Of course, January 18th, 1982, Time Magazine came out with a cover story on the growing influence of video games and the huge phenomena. And one of the little story snippets in that long, like eight or nine or ten page article, 
was about Steve Jurassic getting a high score on a game. Someone in my arcade said, well, I can beat that game. I can beat that score. And I said, oh, sure, sure. I didn't believe him, of course. Sure, go ahead, prove it. Before the weekend was over, he had gotten the high score. However, in the process of him getting the high score, I called up the local radio station, TV station, and they came right down and did a story on it. That really impressed me. Before the night was over, we were getting calls from St. Louis and Chicago, from other places. The media all over the region was intrigued and excited about this. So on Monday morning, to try and find out if this new score he got, which I think was 24 million points, it was on Defender, whether or not that was the new world record, I called up Williams Electronics that made the game and found out that they didn't know what the world record was. And so I called up Replay and Playmeter, which were the two prominent video game magazines. They didn't know either. But in each case, everybody said, we get called all the time, almost every day, and uh, we never know what the high scores are because no one keep track, keeps track of the records. So on it, out of interest, I called Exidy and Midway and Valley, uh, uh, Universal, I guess, Nintendo, Atari, and I asked them about high scores, and all of them said, we don't know because no one keeps track of the scores. Well, I thought about that overnight, and I had all these notes and all these scribblings from all the places I'd been. I thought, I, I just thought that, that this is something that should be done. I just have to do this. And so I called them all back the next day and announced that we had a scoreboard here and that we were keeping track of the records if anybody wanted to know. And everybody unanimously, all nine phone calls I'd made, they all said, this is wonderful. Thank you very much. This is a great service. We will keep your name and your phone number right here by our front desk Rolodex in case anybody calls about high scores. And uh, it was amazing because I hung up the phone and after about 30 minutes after that, I was playing a game of court. Suddenly the phone rang and it was someone from Nashville area, Nashville, Tennessee area, Goodlitzville, Tennessee, calling about a high score in Galaga. Casey Murphy from Goodlitzville, Tennessee called about his high score on Galaga. And, uh, and uh, by the way, when they asked me who we were, I said, oh, we're the Twin Galaxies National Scoreboard. So I had to really start inventing and creating this whole thing from the very beginning so that it was up and running. So essentially, it was a very smooth, easy, effortless thing that happened automatically. And the reason it happened automatically is because Benjamin Franklin didn't create the lightning. He just tried to find a way to funnel it into something that could be usable, could be applied. So the huge energy of the growing age of video game playing, that golden age, Twin Galaxies became the first nervous system of the age of esports, the first nervous system to bring down that electricity and turn it into something that could be used, applied, and benefited from. In doing so, it allowed all the arcades around the world to become united in a global esports arena. That really summarizes it pretty succinctly. Succinctly. Walter, let me ask and, you a question. Uh, uh, Walter, before when you when you opened up the Twin Galaxies in um, eighty one, did did you have an internal scoreboard in 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 actual in the actual arcade where you were keeping scores of the the people oh, yeah, there? Yeah, we had yeah, we had, we had a scoreboard there because when when Casey Goodlitz. Casey called from Goodlessville. He says, what's the high score in Galaga? I looked up at the scoreboard and told him that he was in second place based oh. on the score that was up there on the wall at that time. Oh, so so the, your local scoreboard is what ended up turning into a national scoreboard the following year. No, the local scoreboard is what turned into becoming the national scoreboard on that same day. I mean, oh. Remember, at the time that we yeah, you're right. getting this, this is happening, we're only three months old. The arcade has only been three months at the time. That we at the time. So it was, a, it was a local scoreboard from November all the way until February. But when that guy called in for the Defender, then it, and you started getting the calls, then you turned it into a national scoreboard. It became a national scoreboard on the spot. Oh, because, okay. Because from that moment, all the manufacturers which were getting calls or inquiries from around the world they were now all sending the calls to twin galaxies so one minute we're our local scoreboard the next minute we are the scoreboard for the world and essentially overnight became the world's most famous arcade and it was a miracle because there was no internet well yeah but because 
because you have to see, Jose, you have to realize that a lot of things were already in place. A lot of the elements that you're seeing in modern esports were already in place, but it took that first nervous system to come into existence to go and capture that electrical charge, that lightning, and turn it into something that could be used, just like Benjamin Franklin did, something that could actually be applied as a sport. People, when you go into an arcade and you see someone playing a great game, you'll see a big crowd gather around them. Otherwise, the spiritual energy, the spiritual dynamic of a bona fide spectator sport was already in place. The millions of people who are prepared now to go online and pay their money, pay-per-view to watch video game playing or, or go to the stadium and get in a chair or seat and watch video game playing, that's not something new that's being invented by today's modern esports people. And it didn't get invented by me. All I did was allow the champions to become united, to become organized, have the rules, have their status, have their championship belts, uh, and, uh, and have their tradition of belts, champions, rules, contests, and the whole thing. And that's what exactly turned it into esports from the very beginning, because that's what we did. And it's funny, people say, oh, Walter, you're the father of esports. Well, what it really is, is everybody who's on this phone call, and many more people, they are also the father of the esports, because it's the legacy of the times. The legacy of the times. It's just that Twin Galaxies, me and the people around me, we were just the lightning rod for a phenomena, a force in nature, a force, a historical epic that was finding some way, some way to, to just happen, to come to life. Just like when there's a big rainstorm, a huge flood of water will find its way to the ocean. It automatically will, and there'll be a path that it will find. Somehow, Twin Galaxies, Walter Day, and these superstars that became the Life Magazine guys, became the, the team members of the national team, they were that path through which that huge strike of lightning chose to pass through. So yeah, and, and definitely that's that's one of the most important things is being able to bring those people together. So I was going to say that the cool thing, because I feel like it's funny to tell my kids who each of them have, you know, three tablets, um, four, you know, look at all of our computers and it's just technologies all around them to explain to them that we had these things called quarters that we dunked into arcade machines. There was no internet. There was literally what, what happened was that after that Life magazine, Billy, Steve, and about you know three or four of us, I would say, kind of were a core group. We would call each other every night. My parents would yell at me when they would get their phone bill of $300. Um, and uh, we, would, we would all go. At that point, the video game manufacturers had no chance because we were all working separately. But once we were kind of like together, uh, there would be a new game that would come out and we would all play and then we would talk at night and we were able to kind of like multiply our experiences and, and we were able to kill games quickly um, as opposed to having to figure them out by ourselves. So so the things that I remember was outside of, you know, that's incredible where there was a lot of tension between us. You know, there was a, when we were competing for that, that in those two or three days we were kind of up against each other. There was a little bit of tension there. Um, and maybe I benefited from the fact that I did not party at all. I was 16 and I was kind of a nerd um, and that helped. Um, but, uh, but I would say that, that there was really this, this feeling of, of we're all kind of in this together and we spent our own money, um, you know, because we, we never really could figure out how to make money because the, the business model of putting quarters into, into arcade games discourages competitive gaming okay because what happens is the owners loved it when we started a game and they hated it when i could play for two days straight or when when, a, when we can marathon it so that was one of the problems that, that, that what online solved for was let people play for as long as they want and we have a different way of charging them as opposed to a quarter per game so that was kind of my i mean i have great memories um Personally, in the 80, late 83s, when I kind of started dropping out, um, but I, you know, loved her. I loved it when I reconnected with Walter and Billy and and, and, um, and got a chance to, you know, hang out from time to time. So that was that was kind of my my take on it, um, you know, being part of this experience. Yeah, I just want to ask quickly before you go, if you have the chance, with that ABCs, that's incredible. I know that there was a qualifier before that. 
mm-hmm. and that, you know, you competed in that before going on the show and become the first world champion. Can you just tell us quickly about that experience, the qualifier, and then going on to the championships? So the qualifier um, was, was actually really well done. Uh, we had, I think, 19, 20 people. Um, it was uh, very intense. It was the, the thing, the thing that, that I remember was that I was in 12th place after the first day. That what they do is they took an average of your scores and they said the top score is a million and you got 200,000, you get 20 points or 20%. And so each, so each, uh, our score was kind of relative one to another. And it was funny because I had calculated that, um, that I would be in fourth place. And um, I mean, I knew exactly where, I mean, I was very analytical, still am. I knew exactly where everyone would be. My best games were coming up. Um, but I got lucky because um, I did, I did the best I could do to qualify. And, and Eric Jenner, who really should have kicked my butt, he did really badly on like two of the th- two of the three games, and 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 that's basically how I was able to kind of sneak in there, and um, and then uh, we, when we went to that's incredible, they started us over. So it was like even though Todd Walker won by a wide margin the qualifier, we all started from zero um, when we were on that's incredible, and um, and again I got lucky. Todd Todd messed up on a very key. On burger time, which was the game that he was better than me and, and Darren at, and um, and I just I didn't I didn't mess up. That was it. Um, and so, uh, like I said, I mean Todd uh, at the time, in my opinion, was was the be- the best overall um, uh, was was the best overall gamer in terms of he played everything. He was really good, um, but he just didn't perform during that competition. Well, if I could say something, and this is going to floor Ben because. Um, I'll say something odd at first, but then I'll compliment him. And I'm not in the habit of complimenting Ben. He doesn't compliment me. But no, I don't. I don't. I give it. I give. I give Billy a lot of shit. So go ahead. <laughs> the um, the fact is, he and Darren Olson told me when they were in the studio there that the two of them were in a crusade together. It didn't matter who won to them as long as Todd didn't win, because Todd was that good. And so the fact of the matter is, they were in that crusade. And of course, Ben did very well, and he won it. That's incredible. And then when we fast forward to something we'll probably talk about shortly, Ben was in a one-on-one challenge on Millipede against Eric Jenner. And again, Ben, even though he was down, even though it looked like he was out, he came back and he won. So we used to say back then, you know, maybe because we were silly, but somebody who performed very well under pressure. And uh, both times under pressure, as he says, he didn't mess up. That's the compliment to Ben. However, the truth is when we get together on any game, even today, um, any one of us can truly win because it's how you perform at that, that moment. Story about, you know, on any given Sunday in football. Well, that's true in the game world as well. And there's, you know, there's a certain amount of good fortune involved as well. Yeah, my, my only regret about that time period was I was I was thinking there would be competitions every week and that it would be like, you know, kind of like a professional gaming today where you would have places to go and oh, this month it's in New Jersey, next month it's in uh, Chicago. You know, I really, we envisioned that that would be the professional circuit and the top players would get prize money um, and we would be celebrities and have girls wait in line to, to get our signature and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I got to meet, um, Fatality and I watched it and I just, I watched, you know, it's kind of like what, what Steve was saying that I saw him in Dallas and I, I wanted to chat with him for a second and there's these pretty girls behind me and I'm thinking to myself, dang it, man, we were just born 20 years too soon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, That's I mean, right. it's like, <laughs> Uh, Walter, can you just talk about that day uh, and how you put everything together for the ABC's That Incredible Shoot? Well, that's incredible thing. Well, here's what happened. Uh, Twin Galaxies became the center of the, of the gaming universe, the video gamers, immediately. Okay, there were the manufacturers who didn't really have that much of a connection with the players themselves. And then there was Twin Galaxies, which was the anchor, the flagship of the whole world of video game play. So when different kinds of calls would come in to the manufacturers, uh, 
they would refer they would refer them directly they, these calls directly to Twin Galaxies. Life magazine decided that they wanted to do something special on the huge phenomena of the video game video game age. So they called the manufacturers and the manufacturers of the Walter Day and Twin Galaxies. And it was sort of a duel at first. They didn't know what they wanted to do, Life magazine. And I kept telling them, why don't you come here? I can have all the top players come here and you can do some sort of promotion with them and group photograph them. And that would be the best thing you can do. And they weren't buying into that at first. And finally they said, okay, we're going to do that. We're going to come to Tumwa and we're going to do the uh, do the photograph there and uh, you get all the top players. And it was such a groundbreaking thing because no other place in the world was doing this. So Life Magazine had to actually go to bat for us and deal with some of the parents of the kids who were inviting to come to reassure them that this was not a strange scheme and that they were indeed being invited uh, to appear in something that Life Magazine was putting together. So we got the people to come for the Life Magazine photograph, including the parents and some of the family members too, who was the kids. And, uh, and this happened because Life Magazine was sent to us by the manufacturers, by the actual video game industry. And then the same thing happened immediately after. That's incredible called the video game industry. And they were immediately sent to Twin Galaxies. And I started talking with them about what they could do. All they knew was they wanted to do something really big about video games because video games were so big. And I proposed the idea of a five-game contest, which we would root uh, the standings based percentile uh, based on the highest score being set 100%, just like Ben was beginning to talk about a little bit. And uh, so we set up a contest idea. And so the producer of the segment actually flew to Otumwa and met with me for three days to determine whether or not, indeed, my idea would work and that this should be a viable show. So he looked Twin Galaxies over, he looked Otumwa over, uh, we went over the math for how the contest structure would work, and he got excited about it, and they came and they did the show. So the, uh, the part of the show that was done in Otumwa was far more amazing and far more rich than people realized because most people just saw the few minutes of the segment that was filmed inside the actual studios when the kids are running from game to game to game. But actually the part that was in a tumble was simply unbelievable. And that, that's, that's a major story of its own that deserves to be told. I think that this was answering your question. Essentially, the industry was ready to jump and do something. And meaning, meaning the world of media and the, and the outside world of publishing. And uh, they were sent to Twin Galaxies again and again and again and again because the industry was relying on us, the answers, and also to be sort of like, uh, what? We were world of gaming. We were their scoreboard. We were their, uh, we were esports. And during this time, you also created the U.S. National Video Game Team, which was considered the first esports team. Uh, the team still exists, uh, owned by Patrick Scott and also Tim McVeigh's on there. Uh, can you tell us the reasoning behind creating that team? Hardly did the dust settle over a tumble. Then, then the, 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 the governor of Iowa, Terry Branstad, announced that he was going to come to a tumble and give an award to us, proclaiming us the video game capital of the world. In support of Mayor Jerry Parker's earlier, earlier proclamation that we were the video game capital of the world. And the reason we were being considered uh, uh, for this distinctive uh, status is because we were we were the only place in the world that was a crossroad, that was a mecca. Uh, I mean, a, a mecca for the video game world that would draw people from other parts of the world to come for video games. So essentially, uh, uh, the governor came along with the president of Atari, Don Osborne, along with Replay Magazine from Los Angeles, along with Video Games Magazine from New York City, along with UPI, Wire Service, AP Wire Service, ABC News, CBS News, uh, Glenn Braswell, the head of the Amusement Game Manufacturers Association out of Washington, D.C. And they all converged on Twin Galaxies on March 19, 1983. And they all gave speeches and awards and proclaimed uh, to confirm Jerry Parker's proclamation that Atom was the video game capital of the world. And the reason it was the video game capital of the world, because it was the place which was the crossroads for 
all the issues about esports, all the issues about being a competitive video game player and being involved in the video game industry, being involved in the gaming as a sport. And this was the place, this was the beacon that players all around the world who heard of Twin Galaxies. Of course, a lot of people didn't hear about Twin Galaxies because the world's too big. But the people who did hear about it looked to Otoma as that place from where things would happen. You know, I, I didn't I didn't know that I didn't know that all those companies were actually involved to uh to accredit the proclamation. I thought oh, it was yeah. just a proclamation from the um the the, 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 the governor. Oh no, and it began that way, but it but it swelled up tremendously. And as a matter of fact, one thing that got a lot of press coverage was the governor of Iowa played the mayor of Otomo in a game of Pac-Man to see who would win. Oh wow. Who won? Who won? Oh wow. <laughs> the mayor yes. beat the governor? Yeah, the I... mayor beat the governor, but 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 the mayor wouldn't play me. He was smart. <laughs> well, come on, come on, that'd have been a little unfair, right? Yeah. But the US national video game team actually began yeah. uh in the summer of of eighty uh the summer of eighty three. Um there's the story of the electronic circus. When the governor, uh, when all the manufacturers were there, um, they took everybody took advantage of the fact that there was a a group out of uh, Massachusetts that wanted to begin an electronic <laughs> circus that would travel across the country. And the fact of the matter is, they were there, the manufacturers were there, and at that moment in time, at least, everybody seemed to be in agreement that that was going to be a terrific idea and it was going to be lucrative. So it seems like every time there was an event, the next event was born out of that event. So the idea of the electronic circus and the people we met there for it and all the players who wanted to be a part of it, all of them were there at the governor's visit. Oh, okay. Walter, can you tell us a little bit about that and then leading up to creating, uh, you know, the U.S. national video game team? The, uh, uh, in February of 1983, one night I got a phone call from a man named Jim Riley out of Boston. Whoa, whoa. A company called Meet Meeting Planners. And essentially, he explained to me, he explained to me that he had stayed up the whole night before, unable to sleep, because he got completely grabbed by this vision of a video game circus coming into town with 40 big trucks full of games and people and all sorts of acts, and that it would go from city to city, from Coliseum to Coliseum, from convention center to there, putting on a video game electronic circus. And he looked up in the, uh, and he looked up, uh, you know, he, he, he did his research, uh, whatever it was, he called the manufacturers. And with his idea, I guess, the, the, essentially the first person he called was me, because like I said, all roads led to a tumble. And uh, again, it's not because of my genius, it's because of the huge confluence of all these gamers uh, who believed in esports are becoming a part of this incredible infrastructure of people playing games on a competitive level. So his attention immediately came to a tumble, and he called me, and he said, Mr. Day, I'm putting together a circus. I'd love for you to become a main part of the circus, and I'd like to have an act which would be called the Twin, Twin Galaxies All-Stars. We wanted to have an act called the Twin Galaxies All-Stars. He said, I will give a quarter of the gate by having your involvement. So he offered me from the very first phone call 25% of the gate to be involved. And I got pretty excited and started calling the players. Then maybe about a week or so later, I discovered that every single person he was calling, he was promising them 25% of the gate. So, so I suddenly realized we had a problem here. But I liked the guy, and he, had, he, was, he was very commanding and mesmerizing and exciting, and I was hoping it was going to work, so we moved forward. Essentially, when we did get there, uh, I believe that we were still called the, the something-something all-stars. But once he had all the players in line, then he stopped calling me. So, uh, so the only way that I finally got involved with it again was because the players sort of rebelled and demanded that Twin Galaxies be involved again. Billy, you can probably tell that part of the story far better than I can because you were there. Well, but, well, well, but, but essentially, there was a, there was a, there was 
a, there was a circus team, and our beloved Steve Sanders was made the first captain of that. The captain, so Steve was there at the very beginning. And yeah. then when we left the circus after it closed after five days, uh, 15, 16, 17, 18, on July 19th was its last day. Uh, and a few days later, we were all flown back home. And uh, I decided to start the U.S. National Video Game Team and actually go on tour and challenge arcades and actually have the team uh, be my right, be the, be the, be the action, be the actionary arm for administering to a national contest and those scores would be submitted to Guinness. Because it was at that moment that we started becoming associated with Guinness and Guinness had me do, right after we got back from the electronic circus, had me do an immediate contest and bring as many champions there as I could to generate the first set, the first group of officially verified to my you know, witness, me being the witness, high scores that we submitted in the Guinness Book of World Records. So we went on the road in the summer of 83 and a big 53 foot bus. Was it a 53? It was a 53 foot bus, wasn't it? A 48 foot bus? But it was a 1953 GMC city bus. And it was 42. It was 42 foot. Okay, but it was a 53 bus. <laughs> and we traveled around to about six towns before finally it broke down and we had to switch to a modern car and oh, drive from place to place. But essentially, we did go on the road. We did have uh, lots and lots of adventures. And the champions on the team never lost a single game to anybody we ever faced. So it was pretty, pretty amazing. And, uh, and we were the first group of, that I know of traveling champions. And... We were creating this. We we're absolutely creating this. We didn't have any map. We had no journals to follow. We had nobody's prior precedent. There was no other anybody else's experience before us by which we could try and follow and learn from and do. We had to make it completely up on the fly and travel around as the first traveling uh, game of uh, a team of, uh, of uh, esports uh, e professionals. Well, so, so Walter, this, the U.S. video game team is literally like the first esports team ever. Well, it's probably got to be. Was there any team, well, Billy, um, was there any teams that you know of before Twin Galaxies or during that time before you got on the team? Never, no, not a one, not a chance. And we searched them. Uh, when me and Walter did research, when we went to um, Washington, D.C. and New York, and we went through and we looked through all the historical files. And no, we went, we went through all the back issues of Vending Times, Replay, Replay Magazine and Play Meter Magazine, Billboard, Cash, let's see, we went through Billboard, Cashbox, Variety, uh, Replay, Play Meter, and Vending Times, all the issues back to the early 70s. And there's never an instance we found of someone organizing a team, a team, video game players now we're not just talking about organizing a team because you can go and say oh we're organizing a team mm. but it's a whole other different thing to actually get in uniforms get a bus and go around and make public appearances as a team taking on all comers as a team so that that's 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 pretty pretty yeah. involved and and each time we went we visited manufacturers they said it's the first time there was any organized team that ever came to visit them for any way or any reason. When, when we reached when we reached the Sega factory in San in a Rancho Bernardo, Southern California, down by San San Diego suburb, Rancho Bernardo, when we pulled up, there was a big banner across the front entrance of the building that says Sega, whatever it was called, Sega Enterprises, whatever it was called, welcomes the U.S. National Video Game Team. Wow. So, so that's, and you got to realize that we were professionals. We were getting paid by the arcades we were visiting. Ah. The arcades that we were visiting were paying us. Each one paid us $500. And that was a lot of money at that time. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The gamers. Well, it was $500 plus all you could eat. For every celebrity appearance we made. And we went to eight. We went to eight destinations, each paying us $500. And the manufacturers, I think it was was it three or four or five manufacturers also paid us either 500 or 1,000 or 15. Can't remember after all these years. We were paid professionals on the road as paid professionals traveling in a U.S. national video game team uh, uniform 
on the road um, in cystic fibrosis was also the sponsor. They threw cash in too, cystic fibrosis. So you have to realize that all the earmarks of a genuine, genuine esports team were in operation despite anybody's argument that, oh, it's not so. So, um, and, and also, also you've got to realize that we weren't there uh, we weren't there. Uh, we weren't there promoting an individual arcade because you got to remember us going out on the road like this. This doesn't, this doesn't necessarily put cash in the Twin Galaxies uh, cash box. If, if it does proliferally, it's a very small amount. We're actually out there as a team, you know, uh, like on a team budget, uh, getting paid as a team in a sense. Uh, that's pretty miraculous. So, and Steve, yeah, that, Steve was. Steve was the first captain. That I didn't know. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was. Jim. How would you explain that, Steve? Yeah, he was Jim Riley's crony. Yeah, when we, when uh, when Jim Riley started the Electronic Circus, he interviewed all of the players, and all of us were a bunch of nerds. But I I think perhaps I might have been the the least nerdy of the nerds, and so he that's why he named me the team captain. Steve, don't give yourself credit, man. You were the king nerd. That's why he, he was <laughs> king of the nerds. I see. The U.S. National Video Game Team was a thing we started in Tumblr, but that was a different animal. Oh, well, versus the um the the, the um. Well, the, the Electric Circus was whatever it was called. Originally, it was called the Twin Galaxies All Stars, but what it became by the end, I can't remember. Oh, okay. Uh, Billy, overall, can you, uh, do you, what was like some of, I guess, your memories or stories from that time? Because, I mean, I could just imagine, I mean, even now to have gamers go out like that as a team, you know, it must be awesome. But back then, it must have been like an adventure, right? No, well, well, every, everyone will giggle on the phone because I have more memories and more stories than everybody combined. I mean, there's got to be a serious movie done about that. In 1983, when it's all new, where there's no one who'd done this, who was who had ever done this before. We're all on our own, making it up as we go along, and and we, we were living the highest. We were living the highest, highest experience of being a gamer for anybody in the entire world. I mean, we're ta we're talking. Uh, that's not a serious exaggeration at all. Of all the gamers in the world, no one was out there on the very, very most dramatic edge of being a hardcore gamer more than me and those five guys on the road. Something no one else in the entire world was doing. I mean, when you go out here to the esports now, everybody's really just following a path that's plowed from people before them. Uh, there's a little bit of originality here and there, but everybody's really just doing the same thing. And they got lots of safety nets around. They have the internet to protect them. They have mom and dad to protect them. They're getting paid a lot of money. Talk about the grittiest, most unbelievable on the edge of your seat adventure road trip to be those five me making it all up and inventing that, that US national video game team and going on the road and doing this completely on our own. So pretty amazing. Well here I'll give you a little bit. There was um, there was a couple of us who would never call home, who would never ask for money, because the first question we would get is, why don't you just come home? <laughs> So it didn't matter. We would sleep on cardboard. We'd go hungry. We'd do anything because we wanted to pioneer what we wanted to pioneer. Now, there was an exception to the rule. It's too, too bad he's not on the phone anymore. But Ben, being the, uh, the rich Jewish kid from Texas, he always had money. <laughs> and we were always trying to steal his lunch or whatever it was he ordered. <laughs> we still laugh about that today. You know, we'd, we, we'd sit on each side of him and say, Ben, why don't you order this? No, order that. We would try to force the order that for him to order, depending on what we, we wanted that we could steal off his plate. I still yeah. pick up on that for, for that today. But, so but the yeah, nerds is, picking on nerds. When we, some, when we went somewhere, when we pulled up, it was the equivalent of a rock band pulling up. I mean, we had people waiting for us. We had groupies. Um, yes, pe people did want to be in the arcade. They did want to be around us. They did want to watch us. And what was funny was, and I, I think particularly of a, of a kid, and his name is lost to history, in San Diego, who was waiting for us to show up. Um, he was good at Miss Pac-Man. He was the best in the arcade. And he heard that I was going to be there, and he simply didn't believe that the scores that I claimed to get 
could possibly be gotten because the game really does get that difficult. And, I mean, he was outright hostile. I mean, and waiting for me. And I, and I didn't – I wasn't aware of it at the time, and I was playing, and it was this real rough, mean-looking attitude sitting behind me watching me play. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he would just start screaming, this guy's effing awesome. Because it was exactly opposite of what it was he had anticipated would happen. It was funny. He was such a hostile guy who became such an admirer because he saw that what we claimed and what we said we could do, we really did. Um, It was actually really cool. It It was like being a rock star. It truly was. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing just to think that, you know, I remember going to arcades and seeing people gather around for someone playing, you know, old games like Spy Hunter, Street Fighter, something that people thought might be difficult to beat. Pac-Man 2, it's funny with Pac-Man because it'd always be a guy that comes in in a business suit and he'd be the one that puts in one or two quarters and gets so far. So sometimes it'd be the older guys that would teach the younger guys how it's done. And to go from there to being able to be a team and go out and actually make some money I mean, especially at that time, like people nowadays don't understand. I think, oh, just go and play some games. But back then it was really accomplishment. And then you were, everyone on your team was someone that people would stand around at arcade and watch for hours on end. Back in those days, back in those days, the arcades, uh, the big arcades would put TV monitors on top of the games so that the crowd could watch the TV monitor above the game and be able to see whatever the player was doing on the game. So several of us had this experience. We would go to the arcade, put a quarter in one of those machines where the TV monitor was up on top. And within a half an hour or an hour, the whole arcade is gathered around the machine. And personally, my favorite experience along those lines was in the summer of 82, after my book had come out, I'd go drop a quarter in a Kong machine. The monitor would be up on top. Pretty soon, here's the whole crowd around there. And invariably, one of the kids would say, oh, my gosh, I read the book. Well, if I'm standing there with my buddy, my buddy Pete would say, no, 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 he read the book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, to expand on that a little bit, you're talking about how different things are today or even how different they were in the 90s. Well, it was really different. Um, When Ninja Turtles was out, when Street Fighter was out, someone would say, oh, I got the high score. And you could look at him and say, yeah, how much did it cost you? Because up until like 1986, you played a game and when the game was over, it was over. You couldn't put a quarter in. You couldn't uh, continue. You couldn't expand your score with another quarter. The game was designed to eat, eat your money and kill you off as quickly as possible. Bill, you're cutting out. Right. And, and so, you know, time has changed and people today would have no idea what it's like yeah that's definitely a good point because it is it is quite different when you have uh continues when you can put more quarters uh to get a high score than back then because a lot of people uh you know you put in you try to play one of those old games (laughs) you're not getting far you know it's a it's a different skill set because some people look at an older game and say oh it looks simpler but it was much 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 more difficult and I've learned that myself going back and trying to play Donkey Kong, Pac-Man. I can't get anywhere. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a different set. But, you know, with eSports now, like you jump ahead about a decade, you have like new pioneers like Fatality, who I just got to talk to on a previous show. Uh, Billy, you received the Gamer of the 20th Century Award from the president of Namco in 1999 for your perfect Pac-Man run. Hey, hey, why, uh, do you always, why do you always want to rain on my parade? Who's the one that told <laughs> you to throw in that 20th century thing? <laughs> I'm it's not just, saying. Look, I don't know what you're talking about. Video game player of the century. Forget that 20th. Okay. I, I, I think you're always there to correct me, Billy. Of the no. century. I'm sorry. No, well, well, I'll tell you for fun. The reason why is a friend of mine is in a store, and he's a friend of mine, and he's an enthusiast and all that, and he sees a kid looking at a game, a young kid, little snotty punk, right, few, quite a few years ago. And he says to the kid, he goes, you like video games? He goes, yeah. And he goes, uh, what's your favorite game? I got a lot of them. Yeah. And he goes, um, he goes, you know Billy Mitchell? And he goes, who? Billy Mitchell, who? 
And he goes, Billy Mitchell, he was video game player of the century. And the kid looks at him and goes, what century? <laughs> and yeah. then he goes, he goes, he's the guy that did a perfect score on Pac-Man. He goes, Pac-Man? He goes, man, that's retro. So. <laughs> well, you know, that's funny, too, because it's true. There, there's a lot of people who are into retro gaming, collecting and all that. And then you have, like, the new people that are like, oh, I don't care about those old games. They're only talking about the new games. But there is a resurgence of classic gaming. So, I, right. I mean, overall, what did getting that award for, you know, Gamer of the Century? Well, <laughs> what, what, what did it, you know, how did it feel to receive that? And, I mean, what effect do you think it had on classic gaming and classic esports for the people who love those classic games and they're not interested in the newer modern games? Well, that was part of an overall picture. Um, in 1999, when I did the perfect score, I did not put together, um, you know, all of the energy that would happen. In other words, it just so happens that it's about the 20th anniversary of Pac-Man. It just so happens that they're coming out with the 20th anniversary of Pac-Man. Um, obviously, you know, a home system. Um, it just it just so happens that I was in a race against the Canadian. And it just so happens that I did it on the 4th of July weekend. And it just so happens that there was nothing significant that weekend and the story ran around the world. Um, all those things collided. But to think that I went to Japan on a first-class ticket because the owner, the founder, the CEO of Namco wanted to meet me. Um, and I put all that together when I went there and I, I had to go to the arcades that he owned and I showed off. I hadn't met him yet. Um, I was at his offices and I hadn't met him yet. And I'm finally sitting in his office where I meet him and his inner circle of marketing and programmers and I, I said to him, I says, there's not a kid that ever, ever played video games who wouldn't want to be in the exact seat that I'm sitting in right now. And I had a couple of questions that I didn't get answers to. And suddenly I realized the conversation was completely turned around. They were asking me questions, fascinated by every answer I could give them. And, yeah. and so put all that into the mind of somebody who had experienced what I had. And then the next day I'm on stage in Tokyo where he hands me, you know, the video game player, the century award. And he credited me with the resurgence in the interest of classic gaming, you know, and people say to me, they go, well, how do you make that feel? How do you think you felt after that? How do you think I felt? All right. So later this year in August, I hear there'll be a celebration for the 35th anniversary to life magazine photo shoot along with the International Video Game Hall of Fame films, trading cards, and more. Uh, Steve, will you be out there for, for that event? And what else is going to be happening in 2017? You know, I've, I've heard about the event, but I, I have to confess I've not seen all the details yet. I don't even know what the exact date is. First, weekend, like, first weekend of August. First weekend of August. I probably will be there for that. That sounds like a... Well, I'll make the prediction now that Ben Gold will not be there for various <laughs> <reasons>. <laughs> 2017 is the 35th anniversary of this Life magazine photograph that was shot early Sunday morning on November 7th, 1982. Though so we're going to have a celebratory reunion in August instead of waiting for November, because that, that matches up with things like the International Video Game Hall of Fame, which will be inducting its 2017 class along with its 2016 class. They're having a double double induction ceremony going on at the same time here. And that's the weekend of August 4th, 5th, and 6th. On mm. August 4th, we'll begin the celebration, celebrate weekend. August 5th will be the actual, uh, the evening of August 5th, Saturday, will be the induction ceremonies for the Hall of Fame. And then on Sunday, August 6th, be the celebration of their uh, a reunion. We believe it will be a, as close to a full-blown reunion as can be possible. Uh, Billy, will you be out at the event this uh, this coming summer? Oh, oh, I'll absolutely be there. I'm there for um, a few reasons. Obviously, it's fun. I enjoy it. I enjoy the company. But the obsession I have with winning, uh, in other words, I'm going to be there. Ben won't. <laughs> in other words, in other words, I can't let people 
like go one up on me ever since my experience there in Otumwa back in that first 1982. Um, people say, boy, you really have an obsession with this, don't you? Yeah, I win. I got to beat these guys. So I got to be there. So I'll absolutely be there. What about you, Triforce? Yeah, uh, I'll definitely be there. I'm, I'm actually, um, I'm inducted in the 2016 class, but um, I would have gone there anyway. Um, I was there earlier. Um, I was there for the 35th anniversary for Twin Galaxies. So I definitely have to make sure that I'm there for the um, live photo shoot. I wasn't there 35 years ago. So, and if there's going to be a reunion, I would like to at least experience that. So I'm definitely set to go. And, and this time I've actually convinced my team to come with me. So um, yeah, something that, you know, we never got to do back then. So the team is going to be able to come with me this time so they can um, be able to experience all that Atomwa has to um, offer in terms of history for competitive gaming. So I'll definitely be there. I, I want to ask, especially since you've been playing games since the 80s, uh, you yourself didn't really step into the esports team, uh, scene until the 21st century with your team, Ar uh, Arcadia. Um, your organization has a long list of accomplishments in esports, 21 world champions, 2,000 plus tournament wins, 10 Guinness uh, world records for the team. And you'll be joining your uh, fellow teammate, Tom Water, Tom Roger, Todd Rogers, sorry, at the International Video Game Hall of Fame later this year. Um, I guess what I want to know is overall, just talking about your team and their accomplishments, can you tell us how Empire Arcadia fits into all of this? Well, uh, our team, when, when I started our team, I started our team based on the lore of uh, Twin Galaxies. Uh, Walter will tell you that like in the early, well, I think 2002, you know, I, I did an article on, on, on Twin Galaxies and Walter's history and everything because I was always fascinated by it as a kid. I just didn't think I was good enough to compete with those guys. Heard about them, you know, when we used to run the streets of New York and we used to go, go and try to compete in the arcades to try to get these guys scores, but we were young then and we're like, no, nah. I guess when Billy was, what is 81, 82? When Billy was like 17, 18, I was like four or five. So <laughs> that's not happening. But um, as I got older and, and then we built the team, we not only wanted to pay homage to the, the, to the, uh, the classic scene and what they've inspired, what they've built, the infrastructure that they built to put together the competitive scene to evolve to what it is now. We also wanted to be able to contribute to its evolution. So we're like, a, I guess, a midway team. We're midway. Okay. Um, we have we have classic gaming roots, but we play in the modern age. And so when I built the team, what I to do was preserve, protect the history of, of, of esports, and then at the very same time, um, help develop and evolve the industry of esports. So that's why when I made the team, we were considered the development team as a whole. A lot of people got that mixed up, like, what does that mean? And I, I never really be, was able to put together a summary that summarized what, that's what Empire Acadia was about. We're about esports, but we wanted to develop all the components around it, not just the industry, not just the competitive side to it, but the culture and everything else in between. And we wanted to connect the timelines. We wanted to connect the classic age to the modern age because you only know where you're going when you know where you've come from. And that's when you look at um, the esports industry today, they really don't understand where they come from. A lot of guys believe that Faker is the beginning of esports, which assaults guys like Fatality, guys like Thor, Thor um, Akalan, um, guys like Mike Iorossi, guys like Billy, guys like Ben, guys like um, everyone that was on his show, Eric Jenner, and all the other champions that literally pioneered the entire way to for what we have now. A lot of people said, well, look, you can't compare um esports then to now because the stuff that we're doing now in esports was never done then and that's completely untrue um this this entire um podcast here with walter and todd and ben and steve and billy these guys are talking to you about going on national road trips as a gaming team being paid by sponsors going on national um, network television, broadcasting world championships, having huge qualifiers, having the entire video game industry proclaim um, Twin Galaxies in Otomo, Iowa as the video game capital of the world, 
all of those things, everything you see being done today in esports was done without the internet. All the internet has done and all today's technology has done was help evolve and bolster and, um, and make better what was done yesterday. If you took all the resources and technology of today and give that to Walter 35 years ago, esports would be a a hundred million billion dollar industry. It wouldn't be a billion dollar industry, it'd be a hundred billion dollar industry. But those things weren't that um there. So Walter was like, Walter, these guys were really like ahead of their time. So our job with our organization is to make sure that we help maintain that history and pay homage to it because it enriches the culture and the industry of esports today to see how far it has come to where it is now. And this is not to take away from anything of the modern champions today, like um, Daigo or like Infiltration or like MVP or, or like Faker or any. It's not to take away from these guys. It's actually to kind of credit them that these are the descendants of guys like Billy, Ben, you know, um, Steve, Todd, and, and, and so forth. These are all, you know, and... You know, they're like, they're all the children of Walter. Like, these are the grandchildren of Walter. And I know Walter is very modest and he goes, you know, everybody back then was like the father of esports at the time. But um, that's not true. Um, these guys were kids, <laughs> like 60. These guys weren't even 21. They weren't, they were barely eligible to go to be drafted for war. Walter was 33. He was their father. So Walter was the father then and, and, he's the grandfather now and you know and when walter um unfortunately leaves us you know hopefully 40 years from now or, or more when he actually leaves us everyone is going to really then realize and recognize the contribution he and his sons in gaming um have done to help pioneer what we have now and what we're going to have coming um up in the future so as as Walter's grandchild, um, uh, you know, I, I have it on my Facebook. I'm Walter's grandson. As his grandson, my job is to take up um, the mantle of, of you know of what his his sons did for him. You know, Billy and Ben and Todd and what they those guys were there on the road talking about sleeping on cardboard boxes and and, and tra traveling around the place and 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 goading um, Ben to use his Jewish money to pay for their food and all that other stuff. So those guys put in the work then. My job is to, I have to put in my work now in my generation to, to preserve the, the work that these guys have done, to preserve the, um, the, uh, the, the, the pioneer, the trailblazing. Um, these guys are like, they, they're the, the, the beginning. And we just want to make sure that their history is not forgotten. So that's why myself and members of Empire Acadia continue to do what we do to help preserve the history. So that's how we're folding everything just being able to get this information to get educated to I mean there's a lot of things I learned today uh it was really a great experience to be able to talk with each and every one of you and, and I really thank you again for coming on the show uh to just be able to I mean I I grew up playing like a mixture of the old school games to the new school games and I love classic gaming and things like that and be able to meet you guys and be able to talk about 35 years in esports I mean a lot of people are seeing esports for the first time, but they don't know how deep those roots go. And to be able to talk with each and every one of you today and get that information and learn from you has truly been an honor. And I really thank you guys for coming on our show and talking to us today. Um, we'll be back very soon with another episode. But, you know, once again, thank you. Thank you, guys.